Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the New York Review Books classics. Our book this week is In the Cafe of Lost Youth, written by Patrick Modiano and translated from the French by Chris Clark. It was originally published in 2007. The novel, inspired in part by the circle of the notorious and charismatic Guy Debord, centers on the enigmatic, waif-like figure of Loki, who catches everyone's attention even as she eludes possession or comprehension. Through the eyes of four very different narrators, including Loki herself, we contemplate her character and her fate, while Madiano explores the themes of identity, memory, time, and forgetting that are at the heart of his spellbinding and deeply moving art. And we are joined today by critic and journalist Adam Morgan. Welcome, Welcome. Adam. Hello. Thanks for having me. How's your uh, new life as a When Harry Met Sally cosplayer going? Oh my gosh. Yeah, that made my day the other day. That was awesome. It's, it's, it's going well. It's going well. Yeah. Thanks for asking. You're like the most popular uh, reply on Billy Crystal's tweet about his. No, surely not. I don't know. I saw it taken. I don't think I deserve that. <laughs> oh, you you deserve it definitely. For sure. Thank you. Yeah, I'm obsessed with the work of Nora Ephron. Of course. Not just when Harry met Sally. As are we. Yeah. Except you know, she she had a few duds. I'll say. But we all do. What what are the duds the in your part. opinion? I don't like Julie and Julia. It makes me really depressed. Oh, okay. That's my favorite. I think you can sense some of Nora's like disillusionment with New York in that movie. And that makes me sad because I associate her with like the more romanticized, like nostalgic feelings I have about New York. I love that idea. Also female friendship. She seems to really hate her friends at the beginning of that movie. Yes, that's true. The French parts of that movie are beautiful and gorgeous. Really it's it's more the New York side that I'm just like, Ugh, what happened, Nora? Why do you hate it now? Well, talking about New York, why did you pick this New York Review Books classics to discuss with us today? A few reasons. One, I think it's like the quintessential New York Review of Books classic to like carry around as a fashion statement. Sure. And look like... <laughs> cool and cultured when you're in like a Brooklyn cafe or riding the train or something. Yeah. And then it's also just, it's on my list of perfect little novels Mm -hmm. along with the beginning of spring by Penelope Fitzgerald and another NYRB classic called balcony in the forest by Julian Grock. They're all really short and you can read them all in one sitting and they're great gifts for people who think that they don't like literary fiction. You can give them one of these Mm -hmm. and they can just get like a, a really distilled taste, you know, like 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 dark chocolate. Yeah. And if they hate it, it's it's still short at least, so it's good. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I love the description of dark chocolate. That is so <laughs> that fiction. is such a good description of of Patrick Modiano specifically. Because dark chocolate is like you can just eat one square and feel satisfied. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and his books are like you have this tiny little sliver of a book, but it feels like a whole dessert yeah i mean the cover even like the colors i know there's some like purple in there but it's very evocative of chocolate for me <laughs> for some reason mm-hmm. sure had you read other patrick Madianos before reading this one this was my first and i still have more to go and i don't rem- it's been so long since i've read some of the others that i mm. i don't remember them very well but i know they're all very similar to this the ones that i did read yeah about like a group a group of people in mid-century paris and but no, I mean, after I read this for the first time, I went out and bought like every 
Murio novel I could find that seemed mm, like yeah. it was in a similar vein because I was just kind of obsessed with the whole mood, you know, like some novels are really based on plot, some are really based on character, some are really based on language, and this book is just like vibes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's got, it just oozes this rain-soaked mid-century charisma in a way, like mm-hmm. almost like a like a Wong Kar Wai movie, like yeah. It's so romantic. I've read maybe half a dozen of his books. It's it's one of those things where if I see one and I in a used bookstore and I don't have it, I'll grab it. Hmm. And th- they all do blur together for me, you know, because his he's got a thing. It's like he doesn't write really different types of plots. It's just it's that moody atmosphere that you were talking about. So just to talk a little bit about the man himself, Patrick Modiano was born in Paris in the 1940s. He's written countless novels. He is still publishing novels. I think he put one out, put one out like last year or the year before that's yet to come out in English. Mm-hmm. So go, look out for that. He's 77. He's killing it, you know? Yeah, let's go. He also wrote a screenplay for a Louis Malle film and some classic French pop songs that are still fun to listen to. He came of age during the French New Wave period. And I think you really get that cinematic feeling from his mm-hmm. books. I can like almost see them like a black and white movie playing out before me. And he won the big, great prize of literature. He won the Nobel in 2014. And thank God he did, because I don't know that we would have gotten all these translations otherwise. Um, exactly. Yeah. So that was a big boost in getting the translations out? From what I've read, yeah. I mean, he'd been writing and, and publishing since the late mid-60s, but didn't really have much in translation in English until after the Nobel win. And then there's just been this big flurry of translation since then. And yeah, there's a cool story about him that just sounds like something out of one of his novels, which I guess makes sense since a lot of, I, there's a debate about how much of it is like autofiction, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But apparently when he got married, there was just like a downpour of rain, which of course there was. And the one person who had a camera forgot to bring the film. So he like has oh no- Oh my gosh. He has no photographs of his wedding other than there's like one picture of him and his wife from behind and they're like hidden by an umbrella and that's all he has. I mean, <laughs> that is such a Mariano-esque detail. <laughs> couldn't couldn't make that up. Yeah. Oh jeez. Yeah, that's beautiful. I could really see that on like the as like the cover of an NYRB because I think both the Mariano novels that they've published have a photograph on the front. And so that would work really well with the nice little NYRB square above it. Yeah. Yeah, it would. Let's see it happen. Yeah. I, and you were saying about like French New Wave. It does feel, it reminds me a lot of a Buddha Souf, Breathless. Sure. That it gives me like a similar feeling. That one's shot a lot more in the day time than I yeah. This whole book, even when it's set, I know it's supposed to be during the day. I just picture it all at night because there's something about it that's very like yes. midnight to 3 a.m. But, but yeah. Whoa. Wong Kar Wai is very much, you know, derived mm. from that French New Wave style. And he almost always seems to shoot in the night. I think like yeah. every scene in Mood for Love is like got some form of nighttime going on in it. Yeah. But talking about the cover art, we should also talk about the cover art of this one specifically. The photograph chosen is called Aina Paris by Jean-Loup Cieff. Cieff is known for his portraits, and this one shows a girl, Ina, behind a glass pane, looking very gaunt and almost ghostly. The choice of artists is appropriate, as this book consists of something like four portraits as well. 
We couldn't imagine a better photo realizing the sort of character of Jocelyn, which I think it's directly meant to evoke. I saw the woman on the cover as Jocelyn the whole time I read the book. So did I, but isn't she supposed to be a brunette? I kept going back and forth. Is, is, oh. is Luki brunette yeah. or blonde? Like, it mentions she's a brunette at some points in time, but you're not sure, like, of the chronology. So maybe she changed. I don't know. Yeah. She's definitely a girl that has a wig in her <laughs> yeah. closet that she, like, yeah. pops on in and off when she wants to be somebody else for the night. Yeah. Probably borrowed from, from her mom at the... At the Moulin Rouge. Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you pronounce Luki because we were kind of trying yeah. to debate about how that would be pronounced. I mean, I, I took a lot of French in high school and college, but it's been a long time. But yeah, I think I would say Luki. Oh, really? And I keep wondering if it's supposed to be like like a looky loo, which mm. means like someone that stares. And she's not, yeah. oh. she's not staring, but it seems like everyone else is staring at her. Or if it's like a reference to Loki, you know, the the Norse god of, you know, shape-shifting. Yeah. Or neither of those, but I can't find any, like, French etymology of the word Loki, so I don't know. Have you you ever read Madiano in the French if you've studied that language? No, no. I think it would give me a headache. And this, this, (laughs) this translation is just so, like, buttery smooth. You know, there's, there's zero ornamentation on the prose. Yeah, that it would be there'd be a lot more friction if I tried to read it in French. So it's it's gorgeous. Translators do a great job. Way to go, Chris Clark. Chris Chris Clark. Yeah, I meant to say his name. Beautiful yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. What were we talking about? The cover. It it definitely feels evocative to me of you know these these photographs of Guy Debord's social yeah. circle mm-hmm. in Paris that Mariana was apparently inspired by. I think they were published in a book like in the 1950s called Love on the Left Bank. Mm. And he saw these photographs and that was some of the inspiration for the book, which, you know, at some point in the novel, Kaylee, who's, I guess, a private investigator. I don't know that he ever necessarily says that he is, but, you know, he, he takes or pictures. I assume that. Yeah. Seems yeah. Like he, is. he takes photos of them and then they wind up in a book later. So I felt like that was, you know, a direct yeah. nod. Yeah, it definitely feels like something in photos where like people try to see a shape and it's like, oh, there's the ghost. Mm. And I I think this book is sort of like populated by ghosts in a certain way. These are people that are sort of lost in time and space. And we'll get into that as we we go through some of our discussion points, because it's a pretty strong theme in the book. But first, I think we want to talk a little bit about how the book is segmented. There is a split in this book between four narrators. The first one is sort of an observer. The second one is an investigator. Third is the subject, the girl at the heart of the story. And the fourth is sort of a mysterious person who finds himself close to that girl. Why do you think Mariano fragmented the story in this way? And was he successful at all to you? Yeah, interesting question. I do think this is, and like I said, I don't have a, I don't have firm memories of the other books of his that I've read, which is probably his intent. Sure. <laughs> but I remember them being a lot more limited in perspective than this Mm. one. And I like that we get multiple points of view because we get just a more sort of three-dimensional or fourth-dimensional just perspective on this place and on these people. Like, it's it's so Mm -hmm. weird when one narrator runs into the other. It's great. And you get, yeah, you get that kind of deja vu, Mm -hmm. glitch in the matrix effect, and you realize how they see each other is very different from how they see themselves. Sure. So it's, it's part of the kind of magic of it to me are these multiple perspectives and i remember too when i first read it 
when I got to Jacqueline's or Lukey's chapter, just like gasping, like, oh, we get to read from her perspective. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It seems like the whole time we're going to be observing her and then suddenly we're with her and it, it feels like everything has been shattered, an entire illusion, a fourth wall. It's, it's exciting. Yeah. Because I knew that it switched from maybe the back of the book mentioned that, but you don't know who it will be next. Mm-hmm. And when I got to that third section and it was her, I kind of thought I anticipated that she would be the final, that we mm-hmm. would all, that we would slowly work our way to her. But for her to be the third, I was like, oh, who's it going to be next, right? Like, it seemed like there was an extra half turn that the story took around you, which is very satisfying as a reader. I just remember thinking it was going to be her mom. Oh, oh, yeah, that would make a lot of sense. I'm kind of glad that it wasn't. I like the direction it goes in and... I love the final section was probably my favorite. Yeah. I love the sort of intimacy between the narrator and Jocelyn and that part and what it all builds to is really impactful. I wanted to make a sort of connection. Have you ever read 2666 by Roberto Bolaño? Yes. It was part of my thesis in in graduate school. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. I I found it, the structure very similar to that, where at first we're with the, the intellectuals and they're sort of like these observers of sent to Teresa and then we are with an investigator I can't remember that guy who's in part three but he's directly looking for the murders and then we're in the murders and that's like part four and then Mm -hmm. just like how I thought like Cassia thought that the murders or Jocelyn's sort of section would be the last part I thought like what what would we do after this and then there is that sort of right turn at the end where you introduce uh, Von Arkenboldi. And I think that really wraps it up well as this book does. So I couldn't get that out of my head while I was reading it. Did, have you ever thought about that with this book? No, that, I mean, that's brilliant. The parallels there between those two. I'd never thought about that structurally, but you're right. It's, it is a similar kind of structure and a similar, there's a line in there in 2666 about, I think it's about just the, the homicides Maybe it's about a feeling. I can't remember the exact line, but that it's circling like a vulture. Yeah. And I Mm. kind of feel like Modiano's prose does that. Yeah. As well, as opposed to just like directly engaging with a scene or a character, it does kind of, you know, circle like a vulture. Yeah. Yeah. And the, he, he tends to across all of his books, write characters who resist any kind of direct engagement. So, for it to be this little carousel of multiple perspectives allows you as a reader access to the missed connections between them because it's so much about alienation and loneliness and what isn't happening. And I think it's a great device for a writer with his particular interests to latch onto in this case. And that may be why it's like kind of the quintessential Mariano yeah, and they both do a lot of work with disorientation as a literary device, which sure. I think is kind of rare for that to work well. I think mm-hmm. it's very easy for that to be off-putting and to feel really like avant-garde in a I don't in an off-putting way. But the way it's that it's distancing in a in a negative way. Yeah, usually at least that's how I do you, do, you, do you know of like a, a notable example where you feel like it doesn't work as a comparison yeah what was that book satin island by tom mccarthy okay, okay it's his fourth novel so why why do you think that doesn't work as well as something like this does i mean i think some of its subject matter like satin island and yeah it was on the short list for the 2015 man booker prize it you know subject matter wise it was just about this protagonist named you 
like the letter U, who was an employee oh, okay. of, oh, gotcha. of the company, and <laughs> he was he was just like in a consulting firm, and he would like get lost like looking at pipes in the office, and it, it was just very. It was very disorienting intentionally, mm-hmm. and I think that was part of its appeal for, obviously, for a lot of readers, or it would have been shortlisted for an award. But uh, for me, that's an example of one that just, I, it, there wasn't enough grounding me in something. Modiano at least grounds you in a sense of place very yeah. strongly. It's very specific. Yeah, even if the chronology is disorienting or the characterization is disorienting, you're grounded by something, and that helps me a lot Mm -hmm. that's a good point there is a section of the fourth part where roland switches from referring to jacqueline in the third person really like she walked down the street to addressing her directly he's like you were beside me and that really grabbed my attention i was like oh what what's going on here you know when something like that happens what what effect did that have on on you as a reader, and and why do you think he chose to make that change? Yeah, I kind of had a similar reaction where I just sort of half gasped at that, not the full gasp of earlier, but <laughs> a half gasp at least. Because at first I thought it was a typo, honestly. Oh, um, nice. On the very first instance, and then once I realized, oh no, this is like a deliberate choice, I kept thinking about it and trying to figure out why. And I don't have a good answer other than it shifts their relationship for me to a more intimate one that's really kind of been missing from the whole book. Because the whole yeah story, you know, and we can talk about fixed points later, but nobody has any fixed points. And I don't know, once he started saying you, it felt like, oh, now there's a direct connection between two people in time and space. Gotcha. But I don't know. What, what did y'all think? Yeah, Dylan and I chatted a little bit about that. We were writing the rundown, and my thought was that, you know, she's people, everyone's trying to get a piece of her, and she's retreating from everybody and life and herself throughout the whole thing. And he, he feels her going away, and so he wants to kind of grab tighter, I think. Mm. And it's that, de- like, to me, it feels like that desperate clinging that you do to someone when you feel like you're losing them. You're like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I like that a lot. That makes sense. Did you have a thought, Dylan? I I just struggle to go back and forth about what I think of it. I guess I felt similar to the way when I started read, like how you mentioned you started reading the Jacqueline section and you thought there was this intimacy that you thought would never be broken there. And that was really how I felt when it, when it became this sort of first person relationship between the two of them. And I think it's because everything is so distanced in the book that when it happens it releases all distance. There's like no atomic scale between you and and Jacqueline and even Roland in that moment. You are them. Mm-hmm. And that it's just such a swing that I think it's really effective that you he he holds back and holds back and holds back that when he gets to these moments where he feels ready to like open it up it it works better than it would otherwise. Yeah, that makes sense too. I remember the first time reading it for a minute thinking that Roland was the student from the first chapter. Mm. Mm. and then having to like look for confirmation that it wasn't the same person i had to go back and like try to figure out certain characters at certain times because i was a little foggy with everything but there is an intentional fog Mm. when i left the student i had trouble placing him in the world 
I don't know that I ever fully did. I was ever like, that could be like one of five people. Maybe he's not mentioned at all. Yeah, you don't really get a sense of how long he was part of that well, because he wasn't really a part of the group. It's like he was just kind of around. Exactly. He he himself like mm-hmm. wasn't really a part of it either. And I, that's why I think it's an interesting introduction. The whole time you're like, well, where was he with everyone yeah. else? Which is a great way to kind of introduce this idea of fixed points or a lack of fixed points kind of early before you even realize you're reading about it, I guess, in the novel. I don't know. I was fascinated by this whole point fix A theory and then also the like neutral zone. Yeah, yeah theory that that comes later and then i don't did it strike the two Mm -hmm. of you absolutely yes so the the cafe of the titular cafe seems to serve as a, a fixed point in time and space for these characters it's a place where they can gather and escape from reality into their own bohemian smoke filled world (laughs) and and many of the characters are drawn to it are broken in some way they're searching for something they're if they're not young themselves they're obsessed with the idea of youth there's these like a couple of older guys that are there that are kind of hanging on to the 18 to 25 crowd (laughs) that's there (laughs) and so and so then we see a lot of these characters as well which we see across all of Mariano's work which is embodied by that uh, amazing story you told about the the wedding photos or lack thereof is these characters are always trying to defeat obsolescence by clinging to dates and times and addresses and this minutia of life. How did the cafe setting serve as a focal point for Mariano's themes in your reading? Yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was fascinating for a few different reasons. One, because it's it, it's the central kind of fixed point in the novel, and yet it's a fictional cafe, as far as I can tell. There was no actual mm-hmm. Condé in, 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 or correct me if I'm wrong. I assumed it was just like a composite. Yeah, I can't. F- imaginary place. Yeah, I can't find any evidence of it having having existed. And I mean, he could have picked like Le Domingo or something that was right there, but he didn't. He, he made up, he made one up. And I also know, I think some of it is, is likely autobiographical to an extent because I know you know, he, he enrolled at the Sorbonne, which is like right there, right next to the the Lodeon quarter where the cafe is supposed to be. So, mm-hmm. and he was, you know, he was around the same age as some of these characters when this is set. So I feel like some of this is probably based on, it might have just been one night he spent in a cafe or it might have been more than that. But I feel <laughs> like there was probably a place like this that was meaningful to him at some point in time. And that's, but that's not based on any, reading I've done of his memoirs or anything. I know he, he, he wrote one, but I, I haven't read it. But other than that, this, this idea of fixed points really just felt so true to life for me. I spent about 10 years in Chicago, pretty much my entire you know 20s. And there is such a unique feeling to being young and single in a really big city where you don't really know anyone at night <laughs> like that is a very unique mm-hmm. feeling and he just absolutely nails it in this in this book this like combination of nostalgia and like extreme loneliness and kind of desperation for human mm-hmm. warmth and human connection but at the same time a sense of independence and and also timelessness like you do feel kind of desperate for fixed 
points in your life or in your past and your sense of how long you've been in this city or how long, how old you are now, it kind of starts to get furry, especially, mm-hmm. I don't know, there was a period of time in my life in Chicago where I was, I was really a night owl because I had a, a job that I would start a shift at like three in the afternoon. So sometimes I'd sleep until sure. noon and in Chicago in the winter, the sun goes down at three in the afternoon. So I felt like a nocturnal <laughs> creature and this reading, this just really brought me mm-hmm. back to that period of my life and those feelings of loneliness. But there was also like a beauty to like walking the streets of a big city and feeling that like anonymity and just feeling like, you know, an, an atom floating mm-hmm. through space. A-T-O-M, not A-D-A-M, although I was also, You're I, I was also an, an A-D-A-M floating through space. I don't think that was your question though. I'm sorry. What was your question about the cafe's role in the book? Just serving as a focal point for those themes, but I think you spoke to that perfectly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've, I found it super relatable as well. And, and that exhilaration and the hopelessness of that period of your life, because anything could happen. Maybe you'll meet someone today and then you'll go off into this totally other direction. And yet you started at this nexus of this place. Did you have your own conde? Was there like a specific cafe or like bar that you hung out at? No, and I wish I had, because I think that would have helped to have a fixed point, you know? Mm -hmm. To have one kind of fixed point like that and to have a group of people that even if you didn't know them, there was some like comfort in their presence consistently. But no, I mean, there was like a, a a Puerto Rican restaurant that was like open all night that I would stop in sometimes on my way home from grad school. You know, I was also teaching. So sometimes mm. I get home at, you know, 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. and it'd be dark and I'd stop by there on my way home and I'd see some regulars, you know, and I'd, I'd get to know the people that worked there. And there's a lot of like neon light and in the in the in the restaurant and on the street so it kind of had this noirish feel to it and it was yes. in the neighborhood logan square sure. with a lot of like gothic architecture so that's probably the closest thing i had to a conde but but no that that feeling is just so and also the loss of of a sense of self like a, a, a grounded or permanent sense of self that I feel like all these characters are experiencing, at least some of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that feeling too, because it's like, who, how did I get here? You know, like I'm a, a little geek from a small town in North Carolina. Like, what am I doing in the middle of the night walking around Chicago? Sure. Which I feel like some of these characters have that same sense of, of surrealism and loss of sense of self. And for a lot of them, it was probably a temporary period in their lives except for i don't know some of those old guys i don't know if they've been there for decades right. or, or what yeah yeah some of them they've lost it like for because of circumstances or you know that that transitional period of life between like youth and proper adulthood when you're settled but then some of them are really kind of pushing it away and resisting any sort of mm-hmm. tethers so it's always it's there's a mystery to them where you're trying to figure out how did they find themselves here? And it's kind of like that when you're in a cafe in the middle of the night and you see some weird character like across the room ordering like their third glass of wine and you're just like, why are they here at 2 a.m.? You know, like (laughs) what's their story? And they're probably thinking the same thing about me, but you never talk, but there's like a silent communion. Yeah. Mm. No, that, that feeling is definitely something that's evoked in this book. And I love the the double entendre of lost youth 
Yes. Mm. In the title, because it's like, are you talking about young people who are lost? Or are you talking about older people who have lost their youth? Because you have both going on in the novel. You do have both. And I think that's important. Yeah. The double meaning of that phrase can be applied to multiple people in different ways. Yeah. And the way Modiano narr- narrates as well is he'll just, between sentences, skip forward like 40 years. Like, and you don't realize it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you don't realize him, the gap between a period and the first letter he skipped 40 years. And then we'll say like, many years later, that cafe was gone and there was a laundry mat there and I ran into <laughs> so-and-so and it's just like, oh, and then you get that like instant nostalgia for the way things were. Yes. And that sense of loss and grief that you might be familiar with from your, like a, a place that you knew well. And yeah, it, it really kind of reminds you of how fleeting everything is in a beautiful, but, but sad way. It's intense. Yeah. It's an intense feeling. Going along with that, the characters' relationships themselves to time are, are fractured through that narration. Mariano weaves in and out of different zones of the city in the same way that he weaves in and out of different timelines. Why make this story seem broken in time as well as eternal in that way? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to the whole disorientation as a literary device. I think, you know, it grounds us in place, but kind of unmoors us in, in time. And I think it's a deliberate effect to help us get in the mindset of these characters and how they feel about their lives, particularly late at night. Sure. And it also ties into kind of that second, like, grand theory that's in this book about neutral zones. Yeah. This idea that there are places that are neither belong to, like, this neighborhood or that neighborhood or this category or that category, and they just feel like a like a non-place. And yeah. I don't know about the two of you, but that, I mean, I can relate to that so much. Obviously, like living in Chicago, there are just kind of gaps in between neighborhoods that sometimes feel a little odd. But really, anywhere I've ever lived or traveled to, I've always felt anxious and uncomfortable in places like that. And for a long time, I couldn't pick my finger on why. I was just like, I don't like the way this, I feel right here, but I didn't know what it was. And I think as I got older, I realized it's, it's those sort of non-places or neutral zones, as, mm-hmm. as Modiano or Roland would, would call it, that, that make me uncomfortable. And there's actually a really fascinating book by Mark O'Gay uh, called Non-Places. I read that. You know, you have? Yes, I read that. And it was a, a clarifying experience, like what you were describing, where I was like, oh, that's why like airports are so creepy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he talks about it as a symptom of modernity or, or super modernity mm-hmm. where yeah like airports freeways fast food restaurants but at, at this point also like entire towns yeah. and, and sections of cities have just become non-places and and what that kind of does to the human psyche when you're in one or traversing one so yeah fascinating stuff to go off that lost horizon by james hilton is referenced repeatedly throughout the novel it is a story about the finding of Shangri-La, which is a paradise where you can live forever in your youth, but are separated from the outside world. When you escape, you succumb to your age and that you're supposed to be, and you could possibly die because some people that escape are like 130 years old, so you just kind of fall to bones. Conde, in that way, is sort of like a modern-day Shangri-La in the middle of Paris. There is sort of this magical realism to this place. 
What do you see as the similarities and differences between these stories and sort of the styles that they're being told in? Yeah, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with that book. I did, I remember looking it up to see like, is this a real book that they're talking about? Mm-hmm. It sounds like a David Lynch movie, but it's not quite the right title. <laughs> well, have you, seen, you You should see the movie. They have, they have a movie directed by Frank Capra. Oh, Lost Horizon? Yeah, it's, I, I really like the movie. Oh, man. Well, yeah, I wish I'd seen it and then I'd have a more intelligent response for you. But that reminded me, <laughs> there's a passage on page 40 where, I guess it's Kaylee that's talking. Let me make sure. Yeah, who, who says, In this life that sometimes seems to be a vast, ill-defined landscape without signposts, Amid all of the vanishing lines and the lost horizons, we hope to find reference points to draw up some sort of land registry so as to shake the impression that we are navigating by chance. So we forge ties. We try to find stability in chance encounters. So yeah, like I remember thinking like, I'm sure he named it Lost Horizons for, or he chose that book for a reason. And then he name drops it again. Like, what is this? Some kind of suicide squad? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I don't have a better answer than that other than it feels so right and so aligned with that disorientation of space effect. Yeah. And disorientation in, in time as well. But tell me, because I haven't seen the movie and I haven't, I'm not familiar with the book, what kind of parallels that, that you see between the two? Well, it is, it's very Capra-esque in sort of that there's this whimsical nature, there's this institutional idealism but i what i really like is that it's two similar themes but just approached in very different ways one is you know on the side of the himalayas in this idealistic landscape in this romantic man journeys into the unknown and finds his place like that's how like these stories would be told in the time when it was written in the 19th century and it's the exact same story just in a completely different harmonic style in the new way, which is about as far apart as I think you could get in sort of the most base nature of it, which is very internal, very ethereal. And I love that it's you can experience the same narrative ideas and themes from two different styles. I always enjoy when I can find overlaps between things like that. So yeah. that's what I thought about a lot. I wish I wish I had read the book because I think the book is quite a bit different than the movie because the movie Hollywoodizes it a bit from what I can tell from like yeah. the Wikipedia plot summary, which isn't shocking, but I think it's still pretty effective when they escape and sort of the this idea of like this lost paradise and what is worth youth and living forever when you're so distanced and lost from everything else. Yeah. I'd love to dig into his memoir to see if he mentions any of this, but I would have to think he at least read the book, Modiano, if, yeah. if not mm-hmm. if not saw the movie at some point. I have to yeah. keep reminding myself that he wrote this in like 2007 because it feels like it was written in 1963. It feels true to its period completely. Yeah, yeah. It feels like he would have written it contemporaneously to when he was living it. You know, he would go back to his flat in a neutral zone in Paris and just start writing away at the yeah but then he <laughs> imagining the different people he had seen but then he, he probably couldn't have done that sort of magic narration thing that he does where he skips it's true skips forward in time instantly decades you get that sense of of loss yeah yeah he has enough distance from the material to know what were the valuable fixed points he can read more into the past than he probably was able to contemporaneously 
But I liked the way that Lost Horizon, that story serves as like a fixed point for those characters because the girl and Roland, they get involved with this guru guy who's recommending all of these kind of pseudoscientific texts to them and they're like reading these books like searching for answers and then some of the earlier characters they had like this guy keeps a notebook of everyone's nickname and the first time they came into the cafe and what their address is and I wonder if Mariano because of that preoccupation of his if he's people who like books and reading and stories and like grab onto that as a form of meaning, like something that imbues life with meaning. If we like him more than other readers <laughs> would, <laughs> if he's like a writer's writer sure. because of that. Yeah, maybe. I hadn't thought of that. But I, I love my favorite thing about that notebook is that it turns like multiple characters later find out that it's wrong. <laughs> like the, the data in there is wrong. Yes. Which is, is, is perfect. Cause not even the fixed points are fixed. And yeah, going back to what you're saying about, you know, the, the Guy de Vere character, which is such a thinly disguised version of Guy de Boer, I assume, like, that's supposed to be <laughs> supposed to be a stand-in. Yeah. And my big question there is, like, I can't tell how much Modiano is, how much affection he holds for this kind of group of bohemians, or at least bohemians like these people, and how much he's making fun of them slash kind of disillusioned with the whole bohemian lifestyle mm. like I, I i feel this i feel his affection for lukey as a character when i'm reading it i feel like he loves this yes he has the deepest care for this her. care and i f- and sort of this this person falling out of everything yeah and i feel it a bit too for roland and a, and a and mm-hmm. for you know lukey's mother and you can even read like her husband relatively sympathetically even though there's some issues there obviously yeah but yeah this group of bohemians like and and Guy de Vere slash Guy de Boer I can't it's hard for me to piece together Modiano's feelings towards that whole era lifestyle these like groups of Amar Guard you know social revolutionaries and artists and, and writers because a lot of those names especially of the older guys like there were actual writers and artists hanging out in that part of Paris with those names at this point in time. So I can't tell, like, mm-hmm. is he is he name-dropping old friends? Is he making fun of people? I, I'm not sure, like, what to make of all that. Well, luckily, we have Patrick Mariani on the other line. Let's talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> Bonjour. <laughs> it's not subtle. It's on the nose. Well, I enjoy the book more, probably because he was able to achieve that hazy relationship to this time period because it is so iconic there's so much of not just french culture but popular culture in general that references that time period and that situationalist stuff is just constantly we retread that ground again and again every generation of kids comes back to it and like finds their own new relationship to it and for him to be able to i think he is side-eyeing it a little bit Mm. however you know there's obviously a great deal of effect you would never you would never write a book like this so seeped with nostalgia and romance and it's so stylish and there's this beautiful but doomed girl at the center of it she's a bit of a of a what do they call it a manic pixie dream girl well i guess she's a yeah depressed parisian dream girl but (laughs) there's a bit of that to it i do think though it is like 
the most overtly, well, one of the most overtly sexy novels that NYRB has ever published. Some of that is, is in the cover. That's a good quote. <laughs> that should be like a blurb on the, the book. One of the sexiest NYRB. Yeah, can you make your next like critic article be like the top 10 steamiest <laughs> NYRB classics list? I mean... That's hitting Lit Hub tomorrow, yeah. Eve, Eve Babbitts <laughs> would be up there too, but this is this would be on my list. Even though it, it is sad, right? Yeah, it really is. But it's it's sad and beautiful in that kind of goth 90s way, I guess. Mm-hmm. But you said something that reminded... Because you talked about each generation kind of having their own experience of this. And it reminded me of kind of another theory or concept in the book that Roland talks about, which is the eternal return. And the fact that the narrators a lot of them are thinking back to this period with a sense of loss. But I know a lot of people in Paris at the time from reading memoirs felt the same way about pre-war France, the sense of loss, the sense of nostalgia. And then you have to think about going back to like the lost generation right in the 1920s and the way we have nostalgia for that. But I bet those people had that sense of nostalgia for like fantasy you know, 1890s. And so I think they're, yeah. some of it's tied to place. Like There's an eternal return there. Yeah. I think Paris mm-hmm. is, a, is, a, is a particularly striking example of that. But I think that that exists, you know, anywhere where people gather and, and culture happens. Sure. Pa- Paris is like a fixed point for us. Mm-hmm. Which generation was like looking back at like the French Revolution just being like, gosh, <laughs> just miss those days we were cutting people's heads off. <laughs> I'm sure there was one. <laughs> Maybe the 2010s, <laughs> 2000s. Oh. Yeah. So obviously youth is a big theme of the book. And it struck me like youth is a period of defining your identity, of trying to figure out who you are and project that to other people. And as we've said, a lot of the characters, Jacqueline specifically, they approach that process of self-discovery in a way that's creating distance from others or mystery. And across all four sections, we see different people, you know, saying, oh, I'm a student at this university, but actually they got rejected or they take on a new name or they lie about where they actually live. And there's this like denial. They're obsessed with all these minor details, but then they also like lie and cover them up. What did you make of that denial of identity that runs throughout the story? Yeah, it felt very true to life to me of a young person. I remember feeling that way you know, as a young writer in my early 20s, or someone who wanted to be a writer. And I just, I was so desperate for the definition and the validation of being more established in my career. And without those things just felt like a nobody, right? And so the the temptation to exaggerate things and to identify yourself with certain institutions and or hide your affiliation with certain institutions just felt very, very true to that period of someone's life when they're, and it's not the same age for everyone, like, and it can come and go in phases, but that just felt so human mm-hmm. to me. Like mm-hmm. the first student, right, is is super embarrassed that he's a student at what the Ecole Supérieure des Mines, which is, it's basically like the French MIT, if you look it up. <laughs> So it's nothing to be embarrassed about. But the people he's around at that time, like he's embarrassed because he's not, he doesn't feel established or cultured as, a, as an artist or a, as a writer. And he's kind of desperate for that sense of like validation or definition from something. And he doesn't sure. feel like what he actually has counts. 
And that just mm-hmm. feels so relatable to me as a young person, like discounting a lot of the things that you may actually have or hiding them. And then just like being desperate for something else, even though someone else in that position could be desperate for what you have. Yeah. It's just sort of that insecurity and lack of definition and sense of self. And that's not just about young people, but I remember feeling that more intensely, you know, in my early twenties. Mm. For sure. Do you, do you have a certain character of the four that you related to the most in that way? Was it, was it the student? I hadn't thought about that, but yes, I think if I feel most closest to one, it would be the student just because, yeah, I think his experience there is similar to kind of what I was talking about, my early experience in Chicago. And and, mm-hmm. and during that period of time, right, I was, I was in graduate school, I was getting my MFA, and there were writers in that program, you know, with a lot more experience than me as a writer. Meanwhile, my day job, I was working in a stockroom, mm-hmm. kind of a, you know, blue collar, you know, hourly wage job. And I felt very inferior to these writers and 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 avant-garde you know literary figures that i was associating with so i think he feels kind of the same way even though going to the french mit is not the same as working in a stockroom i feel like but that (laughs) distance between who he wants to be and who he feels like i can really relate to constant who did you relate to the most Mm. oh probably jacqueline i mean we could from a feminist angle critique (laughs) the way that she's written about like you said she is a bit of a manic pixie french dream girl but that helps like that helps a plot you know you kind of need like a hot girl to to pin everything on all these like stray thoughts and feelings so that just her longing there's a passage where just her longing to escape like i i felt that a lot in this time period that 20s shifting identity place where like I felt like a strong wind could pick me up and blow me away, you sure. know? I, like, someone would be like, hey, like, I, I once met this guy in Shanghai, and he was like, oh, I'm Lebanese. Like, if, you are, if you're interested in these ideas, you should come to Lebanon. I was like, sure. And so I did. Like, I could just kind of pick up and go and, like, do any random thing. So I related to that, for sure. What about you, Dylan? I think the one I responded to the most was, and I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, but Kassili, oh. the, in, the investigator. Sure. He seemed like the most... I don't know. I've never really lived this lifestyle. And I think he was sort of the one that was sort of brought in as someone that's like, he was asked to be brought into this situation rather than sort of drifting into it. And I think if there was any way I would ever find myself in this, it would be because of that. Because someone hired you to take pictures of them? Yeah. I mean, I don't know (laughs) if I'd be a private investigator, but like his reactions to everything was around how I would have reacted. I have... Unlike, I think it sounds like you guys, I have never left my hometown. I, you know, never had these experiences of like walking around as a young single person and like finding myself lost. You're too well adjusted I, to like lie about what you're. I know. Is. I it's quite honestly true. I, I that's probably why. Like in that second section, I was like, all right, I'm I'm get I understand now a little bit better than I was in the first. The first one, I was I was quite lost emotionally and I, I think it picked up after the second section for me did you have a similar reaction to like the first and second sections of 2666 then the oh my god well 2666 is a book i will never stop thinking about i probably think about it daily 
he evangelizes for it constantly. <laughs> good. Yeah. It's a good thing to do. Yeah. I mean, the very first section of 2666, I had absolutely no comprehension of what was happening. I felt like the second section I actually related to because it was someone living in that city. And so I compared to everyone else, I think the second section is maybe my favorite. And I wouldn't I, go I that far, anyone... but I get what you mean. Yeah. No, no one else shares that opinion, but it's the one I related to the most. In all honesty, I do think the best section is the fifth part where you get into the the history of Arkhamboldi and yeah. everything just seems to like grow and unfold. Yeah, the second section does have one of my favorite passages where he, I would have to re- I would have to read it because there's no way I'm going to do it justice. But it's that that instant of disorientation where he's like seeing things in the grass and you're just like, yes. what is happening right now? That's one of my favorite parts of the book. It's so good. What's that character's name? I want to say Amalfi, but I know it's not Amalfi. Amalfi Tano. Amalfi Tano. Amalfi Tano. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I feel like this is a conversation someone would have at the cafe. This is true. <laughs> and, I, is. and I would be, I'd be the person like, oh, I read that book. Yes. Oh, yes like, that I character. Kind of oh, pretend. That's... Yeah, Amalfi. Yeah, great guy. <laughs> it's exactly that kind of conversation. Me buy you a drink, Adam. And that you that reminds me this. of another... Sorry, I'm looking to see if 2666 is in here. That reminds me of another detail from his wedding is that he says that... Moniato's wedding, sorry. He says that the groomsmen were all arguing about a French artist the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, 2666 must be in the other room. I was going to try it's to in my other line. room, too. Again, I'm so jealous of your library, just right there, close at hand. It's their fifty dollar IKEA shelf, so it, it's no. not about it's not about the expensive. It's the the luxury of its presence right beside you, right? It does feel, yeah. It's they are my fixed points. Um, yeah, they in my home, so they keep you safe. I wanted to read the epigraph of the book, which is where the title comes from. And it is also by Guy Debord, who we've circled throughout our conversation. At the halfway point of the journey making up real life, we were surrounded by a gloomy melancholy, one expressed by so very many derisive and sorrowful words in the cafe of lost youth. (laughs) It is a great quote, but... I, I just wondered what, whether you thought it was a, well, it is a fitting opener. I think that goes without saying, but like specifically how you felt that jived with what follows. Yeah. My reaction to that is this was the same on this reading as it was the first, which is, I don't know what the hell this means, <laughs> but it like perfectly conveys that like vibe Yes. that, yeah. that the book has and that like the cover and the title have this like very evocative poetic very inviting sense of like i don't know it's it's just it's very it's sexy i think it's sexy yes i don't i don't know if that's a pejorative way to refer to it or not but it's just so it depends on how you refer to it (laughs) well yeah it's like sadness is sexy when you're young but like the older you get the less attractive it is it's like sure if Jacqueline you know lived to be 80 she would not no one would be interested in her in the cafe they'd be like oh who's that like old crone over there in the corner (laughs) that's a great way to put it yeah I I think I would have had a very different reaction to this book if I'd read it when I was 23 Mm -hmm. than I did when I was 35, and I think if I read this in my 60s, I'd probably have to put it down. I think it would be just too <laughs> crushing. But Interesting. Yeah. yeah, well, I was thinking about that because I'm, I'm in general fascinated by artists who 
write about youth or who make art about youth uh, throughout their entire career, especially if it spans decades like Mariano's has, like he did write this when he was an older man. He's in his 70s now. This came out in 2007. And yet he seems to completely nail it. And a lot of people try to write about youth while they are young. And it comes off as like Gideboard uses or his translator uses the word derisive. You know, it can be really cynical if young people try to write about the feeling of what it's like to be young. And then sometimes um, older people looking back, it's too sentimentalized. It's too romantic. And so to travel through life and all those different ages and like hold both of those things together, like the sexiness and the exhilaration and then also like the sadness and the hopelessness. The comprehension what all those feelings would be when you're just kind of living through them. Yeah, like how you understand them now. It's hard to hold hold on to all that and then render it beautifully in your writing. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's kind of Mariano's shtick as a yeah. writer. Like he's really, really good at that, and that's why he keeps coming <laughs> back to this time period and to these like young, beautiful women or men that are trying to track them down. Yeah, mm-hmm. pa- pa- Pat's a smart guy. He is, he is for sure. I think I like read that um, epigraph and was like, okay, you just read that quote and you just decided like, I will write a novel of dissentence. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's like, it's such a short novel. It's such a brief statement of that, even if it's thousands of sentences instead of just that like one little bit. But it really does capture everything you can in that. And it's amazing how this book is four sections long and still like, under 100 pages or maybe just over it's very short yeah like i understand why 2666 is a thousand pages long when it's got like those five sections but when it's this small and all those sections still feel relevant and complete and whole it's it's impressive yeah i I love short books yeah Uh, and the older i get and the more children i have (laughs) I'm, i'm done we have two we're not gonna have any more but um just i think the more i love short books and this is a one of the rare books I don't think you could really, I wouldn't want to take anything away from it. Mm. And that's rare for me to read a book and feel like, eh, they could have chopped 50 pages off of this, mm. or they could they could have got 150 pages off of this. This is a book, this and, you know, uh, Beginning of Spring by Penelope Fitzgerald. I wouldn't want to lose any of this because it's, it's, sure. it's been distilled just the right amount for me. Yeah. And I think going back to what you're saying about that epigraph, I think regardless of what it means, it's a great encapsulation of like something small that gives you a very intense feeling that then you can then kind of like think about and explore. Why does it make me feel this way? What is this triggering in me? Even if it doesn't, I think there's something about this sensory impression of the language in that sentence on like an aesthetic level, as opposed to on a like meaning Mm. level, Mm -hmm. almost like, What's his name? John Mayer. I remember I talked one time about how he picks his, his album titles and he has he has synesthesia, which I also have. Oh, nice. And he just talked about like like the letters and the words of his album titles just like make sense to his mind aesthetically because of his synesthesia. And I feel like this epigraph and this title, I feel like even if if they didn't mean anything, which they do, I think Cafe of Lost yeah, yeah. is like perfect. Beyond that, there's just an aesthetic like beauty or, or rightness to the construction of these like architecturally if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah it does and on the flip side of not wanting to cut anything it also doesn't feel like anything needs to be added or is missing yeah like it 
going back to the dark chocolate. It's like you have that one square and you're done. You're good to go. Your craving has been satisfied. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And another thing I love about this book is I don't think you realize quite what kind of book you're reading until the last page. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the last it gets cut off it gets cut off kind of awkwardly in my edition at least where it's like the last page is just a couple lines, but <laughs> you know, the last right the, the last things that happen and it, it make you realize, oh, this is what kind of book I've been reading this whole time I didn't even realize. Sure. It. And I, I won't say why, but right. go read it. Go read yeah. it, guys. Is there a um a passage that you uh, s- selected that you wanted to read from? Yeah, I read one earlier, but I, I did mark a couple others. There's one about autumn that I mm. love, and I think I've like tweeted this before. <laughs> and this is not crucial to the story or uh, any of these concepts we've been talking about. I just I love the way this passage makes me feel <laughs> and relate to it so much because I, I love autumn. But he says, for me, autumn has never been a sad season. The dying leaves and the days that grow shorter and shorter have never evoked the end of something for me, but instead brought with them anticipation for the future. In Paris, during these October evenings, there's an electricity in the air at dusk. Even when it rains, I don't feel down at that time of night, nor does it seem that time is passing too swiftly. I have the feeling that anything is possible. The year begins in the month of October. That's when classes start again, and to me, it's the season to take on new projects. I just, it's, it's, it, it's something I would try to, I would have tried to write, like, as a grad student in an MFA program, and just absolutely, it would have just turned out as dreck. And they would have said, this is sentimental bullshit, you have to, like, get rid of this, this has no place in your, in your writing. <laughs> but the way he does it is just so... I don't know. I felt every, I feel every word of that when I read it Mm -hmm. and it, it makes me happy to be alive and that's very cheesy and sentimental, but that passage just has that effect on me. I think it had that effect on the both of us because I realized when you were finishing up that we both were like staring wistfully into the middle distance with like our head in our hands, just like (laughs) listening to those words. And it was like, (sighs) I mean, I'm sure that's mostly my voice, right? As opposed to, no, you, you actually are really good at reading. I was going to say you should read audiobooks. Oh, I was joking. No, no, I swear. Thank you. That was was a good reading. Yeah. I like that. He flips that typical association of autumn which people talk about the autumn of life or like later middle age and he flips it on its head and makes it something a little bit more positive when so much of the book takes like this happy joyful period of life and makes it a little bit dark and twisted that he can also take dark things and make them light yeah that's a good it's a yeah it's like a very sophisticated worldview i feel the same way when i read patrick mariano i always like read him and think oh god i wish i could write an elegant novella but like i can't write elegantly like my writing's always messy and convoluted (laughs) yeah it makes me wonder how he what his process is like like is he writing is he just stream of consciousness banging Mm. one of these out in an evening because i know something like jesse ball does that. that jesse ball jesse ball says he just goes to a cafe writes a novel goes home wow um and then doesn't do much editing after the fact. And he most of his books are kind of short. But I wonder if, like, is Modiano like that? Or did he, like, was it a rigorous culling process of thousands of pages and distilling it down into, you know, the dark chocolate? Yeah. Or, I don't know. I'd be interested to know. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like we've got to read this this memoir and yeah. learn more, to, more about him. Yeah. Pedigree. Pedigree. Yeah, I, I should. 
That's a perfect title, too, because he loves documents <laughs> that prove someone's existence. He said something really interesting about an interview once. He was like, I didn't want to call it an autobiography because it wasn't so much things that I did as it was things that people did to me. Ooh. So he called it a pedigree. And I, it's fascinating. I'm sure I fully understand him. Maybe there's something lost in French to English there, but I just thought that was really interesting. That is really cool. That is very intriguing. He would give some yeah. like epigrammic quote to an inter- like a radio interviewer about why he wrote his book. I'm not sure he's entirely human. I think he might be. No, yeah. (laughs) You know, partially something else. Are there any other points that we didn't get to that you want to mention? I don't think so. I feel like we, you know, hit everything that I took notes on. One thing I'll say is I'm so glad that unlike a lot of NYRB classics, that they didn't put an introduction in this book. Mm. I think it would have actually been harmful to the experience of reading it if you had, and I know some people skip introductions and read them afterwards, you know, to avoid right. plot spoilers or preparing their mind in a certain way. But I think this stands on its own so well, I can't imagine any kind of introduction that would have made the reading experience better. Or even if they like put it at the end, I wouldn't have wanted it there, there either. <laughs> I think it's great that it just speaks for itself. Right. When a book ends, you kind of want it to linger and like leave a an aftertaste and live with that for a little bit. Uh, a book hangover, I think they call it. And yeah, I'm. we ran a poll on our, our Twitter not too long ago where we were asking people like, do you read the introduction or when do you read it? Because I'm, oh, I'm so fascinated by like front matter and pre-digested versions of books and like, what should our relationship to a book be? Should it be our personal reaction or like what the scholars say? So I think that's a good good point. Some some books are left well enough alone. Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad this one doesn't have one. There are others that I'm grateful, especially, I don't know, the, the less I know about a nonfiction subject in particular, I really appreciate some of that, you know, extra historical context. But for a work of fiction like this, it just, yeah, the silence is, is better. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on yeah, and for um, for picking this book. I was excited for like when we would get to Bodiano because it's always fun when a, like a, oh, an author you've actually read like comes up on the show and I can be like, oh, I have a relationship to this already. Yeah, no, thanks for, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I got to talk to them about Modiano. I have to do it. So thanks for, yeah, the opportunity to come on and talk. Well, that was a pleasure. It was awesome. It's really fun to talk about Patrick Modiano. It makes me want a croissant. I'll take you for a croissant this weekend. Thank you. Yeah, the only thing that I didn't say that occurs to me now after the fact is that I think the book captures really well how when you are like seven years old, you feel like being 10 is an impossible hurdle that you'll never get over. Oh, I I 100% agree with that. I remember very distinctly when... What would be my future high school one, like the state football tournament? Mm-hmm. I remember just seeing it in the newspaper and seeing these like people who looked like adults, these big guys. They had facial hair, which I was like, I'm never going to have that. And it, it seemed like, oh my gosh, there's these people that are like so far ahead of me right now. And then I, eight years removed from what they would be at that point, I'm just like, babies.
babies those people are. I know. And the thing that just continues. So like in my in my Patrick Mariano era, when I was like 24, I felt like that would never not be that I would just be there forever trapped in the con day. 100%. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Please join us again in two weeks. We will be discussing Turtle Diary by Russell Hoban. If you like our podcast, please, please leave us a review. You can also check out our digital bookshop, which can be found in the description below. And follow us on our other social media sites. We are on Twitter. We are on Instagram. You can contact us through Gmail at unburiedbooks at gmail.com. Yeah, we never plug the Gmail. Yeah, come, just send us your emails. Let's get some fan mail going. We'll read your fan mail out if you want. Send us your book recommendations. Send us your conspiracy theories. <laughs> Don't send us your naked photos. <laughs> Bye. Bye.